We are now in the Easter season, but this is not a time merely to box up and store the Easter decorations, the bunnies, baskets, plastics, eggs, and colored fake hay. Nor is it merely a time to continue feasting on the candy while contemplating which exercise plan will be the most optimal to remove the evidence. Nor is this the time to merely put the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus behind us to return to ordinary time until 50 days later we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. But why not? What is this Easter season all about? Well, this is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome everyone to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm here with Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we both extend to you a, a happy Easter, Easter time. We're coming to you in this uh, middle time between Easter and, and Pentecost, and uh, we welcome you to the program. Just a couple things uh, I'd like to remind you that Deep in Scripture is connected to the internet. In fact, I think a lot of you are listening to us on the internet www.deepinscripture.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at dis at chnetwork.org. That's connected to the Coming Home Network website. Also be sure to subscribe to the CH Network Facebook page or on Twitter at CH Network. The reason we would love your feedback is we, of course, would like to know your thoughts about the program, maybe some scriptures you'd like us to consider. Uh, or any thoughts you might have on the things that Ken and I have discussed. And what we'd like to do for these days between Easter and Pentecost is to look at chapter 15 of Corinthians. Uh, we'll talk in a moment about the context of this chapter. But this entire chapter deals with the subject that I addressed in the opening. And essentially... Uh, what is this Easter season all about? And Ken, let me ask you that. Um, I mean, is there a sense in which the theme of the Easter season it seems to be something that might be lacking in modern Christianity? Well, it's it's unfortunately true that many people view Easter as a one day of the year. And, of course, uh, in a secularized society, this gets turned into simply, you know, Easter eggs and bunnies and baskets, rather than the true meaning that is our Lord uh, miraculously rose from the dead. The beauty of the church's uh, liturgy and seasons is that this is a day, this is a season, it's not a day for us. It lasts for 50 days between the day of our Lord's resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. So we have about six weeks or so of a, rem a remainder or reminders of the fact that <clears throat> Christ risen is our life and is to be the very meaning of our life. So it's a great time of rejoicing for us as Christians too to know that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. There's been much discussion on, inter on uh, television, uh, news broadcasts dealing with uh, crises around the world. But one particular is, are we living in a post-Christian age? I know recently the, uh, the Prime Minister of England got in trouble talking about uh, the, the faith of England 
mm-hmm. and, and the condition of the church in England. And yet we look here in our own country, look at the crises that we are facing in our culture about the sustaining of Christian values, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the promoting, the defending, um, and at times standing up to ridicule when we have the audacity to stand for Christian morals and Christian values. Mm-hmm. And the question is, well, what happened? How is this so quickly it seems, though it isn't quickly, it's been growing over a long period of time, the loss of the Christian foundation of our culture. And I'm wondering if, if in fact, can it connects to this theme, this primary theme of the resurrection during Easter season that so many Christians either, I, I don't think we would say they've forgotten it, but is it that we haven't taken it seriously or fully realized the implication of what it means for our lives? Well, there's been a tendency throughout the history of the church for certain people to what I would call naturalized Christianity. That is, they, they, would, they tried to take the supernatural element out of it. Now, let's go back to the 5th century and to Pelagius, uh, this British monk who comes down to Italy and then to North Africa and preaches basically that salvation means picking yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and working your way into the kingdom of heaven. And he was deeply opposed by uh, people in Italy, the Pope, and the St. Saint, Saint Augustine in North Africa. But basically the impulse behind Pelagius was we can do it ourselves. And the message of the Christian gospel with the resurrection at the very center of that is that it's only by supernatural grace that we can be saved. And that is most poignantly demonstrated in the resurrection. There simply is no natural law that can explain how a man can come back from the dead. Now, that's why Paul says in this chapter, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. You might as well give it up. We would be exactly what the atheists, uh, the more active atheists, say we're we're just we believe in in uh, fairy tales the resurrection would be a fairy tale if christ indeed did not rise from the dead yeah when when you and i ken went to seminary there was uh, uh we both studied a variety of protestant and catholic but protestant theologians particularly uh who had a great influence on modern christianity uh, let's presume that their intent was um, sincere, but they were struggling themselves with this very issue that we're talking about. And as a result, they came up with alternative ways of understanding the resurrection mm-hmm. uh, to make it more palatable for modern senses, for the Enlightenment, for, yeah. uh, for all of that, Ken. And you know, one, of course, is Boltmann that you end up with the whole idea of the resurrection being a psychological or a spiritual or a symbolic uh, truth, but yet not connected to a real event. Yeah, well, this this has been the tendency. Uh, and it took, as you hinted there earlier, it, it took uh, decades and 
really well over a century for this to begin to show its effects. But beginning in the late 19th century, especially in the 20th century, you began to get in mainstream Protestant Christianity uh, a reinterpretation of the central doctrines of the faith, like the virgin birth. And so what this was does is what was what I would call kind of, you know, put up into the ether, so to speak. It was it was made non non-real, non-physical, non-historical. And so the resurrection represents the hope of, you know, having a better life, not the fact that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Um, and that, you know, people play with that for a while, and they do it for various reasons, but it's very clear that if you do that, eventually then the next few generations began to say, well, what's the point of believing in Christianity at all? And I think that does. That has been a, a great contributor. It's been the the downplaying of the supernaturalness of Christianity, uh, of Christ and his gospel, uh, of the resurrection, that has led to the secularization that we have in the West. It started in the churches. We see it in the, the first letter of John. We see it in Galatians. We see it in a variety of the New Testament letters. We're already during, of course, after the resurrection of our Lord, that the devil tries to undercut the truth of our the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Other gospels, other interpretations. Ken, mm-hmm. you've uh, translated the uh, early church fathers for us, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, the Didache, Clement. I mean, even in these early writings, you know, this, the point is that this modern challenging of the real realness of the resurrection isn't necessarily a brand new thing. That from no. the very beginning, yeah. um, this has been the issue of faith that yeah. that cements Christianity or not. And I think that's why uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel writer John to tell us the story about Thomas in John chapter 20. Because uh, we're told that he that Jesus appeared to the apostles, but Thomas wasn't with them. And remember what he said, well, I won't believe until I see the, you know, the nail marks in his hands and, and, and the spear mark in his side. And then, then he tells us the story of how Thomas does see Jesus. He sees, he says, put your hand here, touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. I'm real. And what is, uh, what is Thomas's response? It's my Lord and my God. And that is the central issue that Christianity always hangs on. Do we recognize Jesus Christ as our Lord and our God? If we do, then that's what truly makes us Christian. If we deny that or downplay it, we're really watering down the true message of uh, the Christian and Catholic gospel. And you're referring back, of course, to last Sunday's gospel, which was that Mm -hmm. very one. And, And usually from Catholic pulpits, we hear sermons on the gospel, and often we don't hear it on the epistle <laughs> that came mm-hmm. along with it. And just to refer to that epistle, which addresses this very issue, where Peter, in his first letter, reminds them, he says in verse 8, without having seen him, you love him. Yeah. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. As the outcome of your faith, 
you obtain the salvation of your souls. And there's this idea of this is a truth that is at the core of our Christian belief. And I remember, Ken, when I had my adult awakening of faith back in college, uh, I was brought up a nominal Christian and later awakening. The one issue was this very issue. He's alive. Hmm. He's alive. He's alive. And I remember reading, remember that wonderful uh, book of apologetics? Um, There was a book called Who Moved the Stone? Oh, yes. That was a long time ago. You know, it was about uh, written by a, 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 a journalist, secular atheist journalist, who decided to use journalistic techniques to prove uh, that Jesus did not raise, rise from the dead. And in, in the end, of course, when he looked at the facts, um, and the facts were the testimony of those that saw the resurrected Christ, which we're going to look at in a little bit. Yeah. But he converted. Yeah. He is alive. He is risen. That is the key. Apart from that, yeah. truth, well, everything of our a- faith drifts away. That, that that's absolutely right. Well, I had an atheist friend one time who told me, or asked me, "Well, what would it take to get you to deny, you know, to just give up your religion?" And I said, "Well, if they ever find Jesus' tomb, I'll be, I'll stop being a Christian for sure." <laughs> in other words, prove to me that that there's bones in Jesus' tomb, and uh, yeah. then I'll I'll I'll, I'll, uh, I'll quit being a Christian. Um, the other thing you pointed, I'm glad you pointed us to that text in First Peter, because what it, what it's really saying to us is that there's something wonderful about believing on the basis of love. It said, even though you don't see him, you believe in him. Now think about that when when we're children, we trust our parents implicitly. We don't up to a certain age of maturity, we we trust them that everything that they're going to tell us is true because we love them and because they love us. And since God is so infinitely above us, more than we are, than our parents are when we're children, um, that's why you're blessed if you you believe and don't see it, is because you you have this relationship of love and trust. And ultimately, that's what the resurrection is about. It's about loving the one who is alive. And and if, if he's not alive, then there's no reason to love him. But if he is alive, then there's every reason to love him. And can I, there's not a one of us that doesn't go through tough times. There's not a one of us that doesn't go through times of doubt. Um, mm-hmm. you, read sure. those, you read those private letters of Mother Teresa when she admits to her confessor her times of doubt. Yeah. But at the core of that, at the core of that, the, the point of what Paul's going to make here in this 15th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is that no matter how low you get, how, how deep your doubt is, there's this one truth that keeps you going. He's alive. He's alive. He is risen. That is the message of Easter. And that's why we don't want to just let it pass quickly. Last Sunday and everything's back in the box, or two Sundays ago, everything's back in the right. box. No. Mm. Let's talk about the meaning, the significance the absolute necessity of recognizing the authentic and real resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And because it's so important, 
Paul dedicated an entire chapter to dealing with, with a variety of questioning issues that those early Christians mm. had. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Let me read that passage, Ken. Uh, for mm-hmm. those of you just turned in, you're listening deep in Scripture. And uh, this is Dr. Kenneth Howell uh, with, uh, with me, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, over the next four or five weeks, the entire chapter, but today, just the first eight verses. Ken, let me read these for the sake of our audience that may not have a scripture in front of them. And then what I'd like you to do is to bring us into the context, Ken, of this letter. And and why, and, you know, where does the scripture, this fit into the context of the Bible and the New Testament and this letter, and why is Paul writing this. Well, let me read that for our audience. Paul begins this chapter. Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You know, Marcus, the um, the way that he that Paul begins this chapter is that he uses a word he uses in other context. I want you to know. I want to remind you. I want to make known to you um, what the gospel that I had preached. And when you get down to it, that's that whole. He's coming right back to the very foundation of why he wrote to the Corinthians in the first place. We know from both First and Second Corinthians that they had multiple problems within yeah. the church. The church was divided. Uh, they were talking about how certain um, ministries or gifts or charisms were more important than another. They were having problems with worship and the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper. Uh, they just had multiple problems of people being living within the church that had just a blatantly immoral lives. So there were all kinds of problems in the in the Corinthian church. Paul comes to the end of the book where he's going to deal with, in a sense, the root of all of these problems is the lack of faith in the resurrection. And that's why I think he begins the chapter with the words, I want to remind you of the gospel, of the good news that I proclaim to you. Well, what is that good news? Well, he gives us the core of that. In verses, I think it's two and three. Yeah, in two and three, he says um, that I want to remind you, first of all, excuse me, it's three and four. I want to remind you that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day. But notice that he says twice that the death and the resurrection were according to the scriptures. That is to say, that if we had understood the Old Testament properly, we should have understood 
that the Messiah had to suffer and die. Now, that's exactly what Jesus told the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. Remember mm-hmm. that it says that he opened to them the scriptures from the from Moses and from the prophets and from the Psalms. He opened to them all the things concerning himself. But you, now that's a, that's an interesting point because these Corinthian Christians had obviously forgotten what the scriptures had said, which Paul had had preached to them. It's so easy to forget what. The, the central truths of the faith that are in the scriptures. But if they had remembered them, they would have known that the death, burial, and resurrection were all according to to God's intention and God's plan. So 1 Corinthians 15 fits into a letter in which there's multiple problems, and he brings them back to the core belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If, if we read around the call text, the, the context of this, I think it's good for us to remember we are so spoiled today in 21st century uh, Christianity. We can go to any bookstore, downline from the inter- download from the internet, uh, any number of translations of the scriptures. We're so overrun with copies and books and translations of the, the, of the Bible uh, that we forget that when Paul was writing this to this to these people, they didn't have any of that. Mm, that's uh, true. For one thing, the, I mean, here Paul is writing one of the letters that will become eventually the New Testament. So that in itself demonstrates the New Testament had not been collected yet. He was merely writing a letter to this church. And there's a lot of things that we might take for granted or might not recognize behind this, which is important. Number one, we see the authority of a bishop, of Paul's authority to write a letter to a group of Christians. Uh, I know as a Protestant, I just assume, well, that's, the, that's Paul. But in the context of the early church, we recognize this uh, authority uh, that he has as an apostle because he had received the laying on of hands of Cephas back when he returned to Jerusalem to get the confirmation of the apostles for the ministry he had received directly from our Lord. It wasn't just Paul going out and saying, I had this vision, and so therefore I'm out and around, I don't care. You know, he eventually went back and got the laying on of hands. So he had the authority to write to these people. Plus, as you pointed out, Ken, um, it, it, there's no exact evidence that they had a copy themselves in that church of the Old Testament documents, mm-hmm. which would have been the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. When he says the scriptures, he doesn't mean the book we hold in our hand. He means what we now yeah, call the, the, writings, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the writings, the Old Testament. But the truth of the Christian faith that he presumes they had already received, which he's reminding them of, they received by oral teaching of Paul and others that brought to them. I mean, that's just the the context of their receiving this letter from Paul. Well, and and the reception of that that gospel in Corinth that you've mentioned here is already indicated in this text uh, several times, a couple of times. One of them, it says that uh, I preached the gospel to you, which you have received. 
and which you now stand. And then he speaks about again in verse 3 when he says that I delivered to you of first importance, or you could say in the first place, what I received. So what was the ministry that Jesus gave to Paul and to Peter and to the other apostles? It was simply to transmit that which was given. Jesus showed him in a vision. Remember on the on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine, he showed him what that what that what who he was. But then Paul, it tells us in Galatians, went into kind of an exile or kind of in a in a desert hermit experience for a few years. He then went to Jerusalem, as you said. And he got confirmation from the other apostles, from Cephas or Peter, and from James, and from the other apostles. But the ministry of the bishops today, and back then, is the same as the ministry of the apostles, to pass on that which they have received, and not to make anything up, but to simply pass it on. And and if necessary, correct, when uh, we've gotten off track from that which we received— and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's interesting the, the way he puts it in that first, first verse. You know, he proclaimed the gospel. It was according to the scriptures, but he's just not quoting the Bible, that this deposit of faith, which mm-hmm. in the beginning of the Catholic Catechism, the very first sentence that J- St. John Paul wrote when he wrote the introduction to the Catechism, he says the purpose of the church is to guard the deposit to guard the deposit. That's what Paul's doing here. He's guarding the deposit, that which he had received, which needed clarification. The scripture, even as you said, Jesus along the road to Emmaus had to clarify um, Mm -hmm, what the scriptures said towards, towards about Christ. It wasn't perspicuous, as we would have said, that uh, it needed explanation. It needed clarification. So, but the key thing was, and we're going to take a break in just a moment, Ken, but this process that's important that he talks about in verse 1 and 2. He proclaims it, right, Ken? The church guards it and proclaims it, has done so for 2,000 years. Yeah. On the yeah. other hand, there is the reception, there is the standing in it, and then there's the holding fast. I mean, that is really key. When we get back from the break, Ken, let's talk about the necessity to receive, to stand, and then to hold fast. We're going to come back in just a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. Be with you in just a moment. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings hearken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. 
If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi with Kenneth Howell, and uh, you're, we're coming to you through the Coming Home Network. And again, uh, please subscribe to the CH Network Facebook page or on Twitter at CH Network. Uh, we'd love to be connected with you. Send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org, or you can listen to us at, at deepinscripture.com. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8, as an introduction entrance into uh, a, a longer study of the entire chapter. And Ken, uh, just to outline what we want to accomplish today, uh, those first eight verses seem to be easily divided into three topics. And if you and I, Ken, were putting a sermon together, this is probably what we would do. <laughs> we uh, <laughs> Verses three and four are the gospel. And Paul said that I'm, he's going to remind them in what terms he preached to them the gospel. So what's the gospel? Well, as you said, number one, it's in verses three and four. There's the gospel message. And then second of all, verses five through eight, he gives the witnesses to this resurrection of Jesus, which are very significant. And then thirdly, back in verse one and two, is our part, that what we need to do in response to this message. You've got the gospel message. It's proved by these witnesses. So how are we to respond? And he says there, that which you received, in which you stand, if you hold fast. So he mm-hmm. talks about the necessity of holding fast to this message, Ken. Yeah, and then it's interesting that he bring, mentions that from the very beginning when he says <clears throat> that you, this gospel is the one, is where, you, where you've taken your stand. And it is this gospel... Um, through which you're being saved. If you hold fast, he actually ends the chapter on a very similar note. In chapter 15, verse 58, the last verse of the chapter, he says, So then, my beloved brothers and sisters, be be steadfast, be firm, unmoving, unmovable, and abound in in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So the question that we, we were always tempted with, as you alluded to earlier, 
we're always tempted with doubt, <clears throat> with questions, if not about God directly, about our relationship with him or about the, whether the work that we're doing is any good or any, has any value. And what Paul is saying is because the resurrection is true, because it's sure, we should be steadfast. Don't let anyone move you away from that and know that your labor, your work in the Lord is not in vain. Because we live in this veil of tears, as it says in the uh, in the Hail Mary, um, we don't always see the end of our work and the end of our of our lives. But we know if we stand in the gospel, that's how we're going to be saved if we hold fast to it. In Revelation chapter two, the uh, John wrote in inspiration by the Holy Spirit as, as standing before him as our Lord, he writes, he is told to write seven letters to seven churches. And, and you know, one interpretation of that is, is, of course, John as a bishop with these seven churches under his wing that he is responsible for. And one of those is to a church at a place called Smyrna. And he says to those at Smyrna, after he, the angel tells him to write these certain things. But at the end, his last message to, to Smyrna is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he says, he who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. In other words, this is another way of saying what Paul says in verse 2, if you hold fast unless you believed in vain. Ken all right, you and I are both Presbyterian pastors who believed in once saved, always saved. Once you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've said a sinner's prayer, you're saved. Mm -hmm. Luther said that he could commit adultery 10,000 times in one day and not lose his salvation. I think he was using hyperbole there. Yeah. Uh, you know, John Calvin, which was the, the founder of the particular branch of Christianity that you and I pastored under, mm -hmm. this idea that before the beginning of times, in the mystery of God's predestined will, if we are of the elect, that's his doing, not ours. There's nothing we could do to become one of the elect, and there's nothing we could do to cease being one of the elect. Given that, Ken, how do we understand this call by Paul to hold fast? Well, it, it seems to me there's an interesting little statement here, and, and it's translated very well in the RSV that I'm using. It says, through which you are being saved. And in that verse 2, he says it's through this gospel that you are being saved. That is, that the salvation that you are experiencing is an ongoing process. But so gets Christ through the gospel that saves us. We don't save ourselves, but that salvation isn't just a one time event. It's something that is in the process of going on right now. But what is our response or what is our responsibility? He says, if you hold firmly to the message. Now, the word to hold on to something is, of course, the, the Greek word here is kat echo. And there is a word echo in Greek that means I have or to have something. But kat echo means to hold on to it as strongly as you possibly can. And that's what 
Paul is saying here, that you should hold on uh, to this gospel because it is your very salvation. It is your very means. And that's a salvation that is going on presently. Now, Christ saved us in the past. That's definitive. That's done by his res- by his death and resurrection. But the process of that being applied to us is still going on today. And if we, you know, uh, cease holding on, if we succumb mm-hmm. to the voices of our culture, if we slowly over time or immediately turn our back, reject the resurrection of our Lord, uh, deny him, as he says, uh, we, we can lose this salvation that is a gift to us. And when Paul wrote to that other church down the road, Ephesus, and he said, by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. When he wrote that, he's talking about people who at one time were lost in paganism, were lost in abhorrent uh, uh, lifestyles, uh, who were lost to God. But it wasn't because when they were lost in those other faiths, those non-faith, those uh, pagan religions, it wasn't that all of a sudden they started uh, doing good things. And as a result mm-hmm. of those good works that they did while they were outside, that God rewarded them and then saved them out of those pagan ways and brought them into the church. It wasn't because of their good works that God did. It was because of his grace that while they were yet sinners outside the family of God, he awakened them and proclaimed to them through men like Paul. And then they responded by grace. And then they were saved into the fellowship of God. And as you said, it's a continuing now process of walking in Christ, or as Jesus said, abiding in him. Well, that, that I'm glad you pointed us to this text in, in Ephesians, because it, it really, especially verse 10, after it speaks about being saved by grace, it gives the explanation, it begins with the word for, for explanatory, in other words, because we are his workmanship, we're his creation. And we said we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, becoming a Christian is a new creation. It's a new formation of a soul that now has been infused with God's grace. But creations begin as babies, but then they grow into adulthood. And that's what we have to do as Christians. We have to go from being baby Christians, uh, being baby Catholics, to being full-grown, mature people. And that's what Paul is also alluding to here when he says that this gospel is the gospel through which you're being saved. So the gospel, which we are, which we have received, and, and most of us have received this. Well, let's say we've heard it. Most of us have heard it. Ken, does the, does the word in the text, this receiving, imply more than just mere hearing? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, to to receive, of course, is to embrace. Uh, the gift can be given you, but you can't receive. Unless you receive it, it's not yours. So he says, you've received this gospel. And then he tells us what this gospel is, of course, that it's Christ died, Christ, buried, Christ was buried, Christ 
is risen. The, the content of the gospel is very is, is exactly what we need to come back to. You know, I think many of our listeners may experience what, what I've experienced, what I think we all experience at one time or another, and that is <clears throat> we have times of question and doubt about ourselves, about our situations, and we have to come back to the firm historical facts. For example, suppose we think, oh, what's the point of going to Mass today, you know, or yeah, I just don't feel like going to Mass today. But the fact is that in that Mass, there is the objective reality of Christ in the Eucharist through the ministry of the priest. And it's the same way that Paul is talking about in verses 3 and 4 that you mentioned as the content of the Gospel. It doesn't matter how we're feeling that day. Christ still died. He still was buried. He still rose from the dead. And that's as objective fact as 2 plus 2 equals 4, whether I'm ready to embrace that or feel that or not. The transforming difference is when I accept that and embrace that as my own. And and hold on to it. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Yeah, so there's, exactly. there's a process there. And it's like the parable right. of, the, of the sower and the seeds. You know, some of that, the seed was sown. It was thrown. It's just what kind of soil are we? Does it bounce off our head? Uh, does it go in yeah. one ear, out the other? Uh, do we look at it and our eyes glaze over? Uh, does it make a difference with what we do with our mouth, our hands, our feet? You know, that's what he's talking about when he says you received it. You know, the point here, I think, is also, Ken, that in that phrase, which you received, there's a lot in that little phrase because he's reminding them mm-hmm. that uh, this isn't a new thing he's writing to them in this letter. He's talking about their history, just like John was trying to remind those seven churches in Revelation chapter 2, that they they had a, a, a witness, a testimony, an experience of receiving but it's fallen short. Things have changed. We aren't the way we were. He's saying, you received this. But he's rem- but they're still standing. They're still claiming to be Christians. But they need to hold on to it to live it out. I mean, Paul said to the Romans, though he had never been to the Romans, he's writing this letter, and he's, he's saying, hey, uh, the word is near you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Because mm-hmm. if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's saying mm-hmm. almost the same thing to the Romans. This which you received about the resurrection of Jesus, you will be saved if you confess it and hold fast to it. Believe it in your heart. Well, you've you've pointed to I think something really crucial here, and that is that when you think about daily life, um, it doesn't matter to think what your profession is or your family life. We don't we don't spend a lot of our life learning new things. What we do is we spend a lot of our life going over the basics over and over and over again. Whether it's in human relationship, learning how to love, or whether it's in our profession, we do the same thing. I mean, imagine, the, I always use the example of a dentist, you know, I would never have wanted to be a dentist, you know, to spend my entire day looking into the mouths of people, you know, <laughs> and, and looking at the same basic set of teeth, you know, over and over and over again. Well, I'm thankful for those that, that want to do that, but that would have been difficult for me. 
but in a way that also illustrates uh, that our life is one of, of going over the basics again and again. And except in the case of supernatural truths like the resurrection, you can always go back to it, but more deeply into it as well. It's not that you need a lot more information. What you need is to go deeply into the mystery that is before us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In that way, it's like an it's like a well that never has any bottom to it. Well, just reflecting on, for example, that the way Paul described it in that Romans passage is that if you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you know, there's an aspect of the resurrection that's an important part of the Easter message of Peter's first sermon uh, that mm-hmm. we'll have at Pentecost at the end of this period, and that is the uh, the complete death of Jesus and the and the yeah. raising of him by the Father. I mean, there's again, it's one thing to have the, the message and the truth of the resurrection, but to continue reflecting and maturing in the in the full meaning of that uh, death and resurrection of our Lord for, as Paul says, for our salvation. Well, I think that's why he, Paul gives I mean, the, the list here that he says in verses 5 through 8. He says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to over 500 brethren at once. Is he just giving a list to say, oh, by the way, these are the witnesses which says that this is true? Well, he's certainly doing that. But I think there might be also another reason, and that is this experience of seeing the risen Jesus had a transformative effect upon Cephas or Peter, upon the twelve, upon those 500 brothers who saw him, upon James and the other apostles, and certainly upon to Paul. It transformed their lives to believe in this. I, I, I think I've mentioned in the past, but you know, I have a friend, a, a very fine priest friend, who said that he grew up like you as a kind of a, uh, a nominal Lutheran and left his faith more or less until in graduate school he realized that if Jesus truly rose from the dead, it made all the difference in the world. And he turned his life back over to Christ, re- re-entered the church, uh, eventually the Catholic Church, and he became a priest. But it was all because he realized that if the resurrection is true, there's simply... Uh, there's no other way to live than, but then to live for Christ. Yeah, the book back during my college days that had such a big effect on me um, and bringing me back to faith, besides reading Gospel of John, which was really the instrument that our Lord used, and, and as I mentioned, the book Who Moved the Stone, and then, of course, C.S. Lewis's writings are so key, was, was a series of apologetics books called Evidence That Demand a Verdict. Oh, yeah. Do you remember those, Ken? And, uh, yes, by Josh McDowell. Yeah. Josh mm, McDowell. I do, and I do remember those. Those books, uh, certainly he was a, 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 I think, Campus Crusade minister. Uh, but what he covers in the first part of those books is foundational apologetics for Catholics or Protestants. Um, and that is the, the, the truth of the resurrection and, and what it means. And Paul, when he says... Uh, no, when he quotes the Old Testament scriptures, um, he's actually quoting from Isaiah when he says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. Your friend, that when, once he mm-hmm. recognized the resurrected Jesus, 
mm-hmm. that there is you're, you're not believing in vain as paul says in verse two that the belief in jesus is something you can rest not just this moment on but eternity and that's a pretty major claim i should say it is you know <laughs> when you think about all the different faiths out there you know all the you got the catholic faith but then you have all these different other christian permutations of the gospel uh, some added on to the gospel some have taken away from some have added on to church and taken away from added on to sacraments have taken away from and there's a bit of an audacity there isn't there ken to say my version of the gospel is trustworthy enough that you can believe in it without believing in it in vain you can trust your eternity to my translation of the gospel. Mm. And Ken, I mean, there's a reason I'm Catholic. Mm. And what is that, Marcus? Well, I mean, the fact <laughs> that it's just not your twist on the gospel or my yeah, twist on the gospel. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, my interpretation of the resurrection, that's what Paul's dealing with here. These poor people who had received and heard and yeah. are trying to stand have been inundated with conflicting, if not contradictory, interpretations of the resurrection. And so they're wondering in the letter they sent to Paul or in the messages, Paul, why do I believe this? And as you just said, yeah. one of the reasons is is that we have these witnesses, this crowd of witnesses that yeah. saw him alive. Well, I think this is the yeah, interesting this past week. A, a Protestant pastor here in my area asked me and an Orthodox priest to come in to explain to them about the uh, so-called apocryphal books. But in the midst of talking about explaining the Catholic understanding of this, I mentioned that you know, in the early church, people believed that there was one church. And that this church, they, they need to be a part of this church. Sometimes they argued among themselves, just as they're doing in Corinthians. But the point is that they believed in the idea of unity, of being together. And the way that you do that is by listening to the witnesses, the witnesses of the resurrection, the apostles and their successors. So, yeah, you're like you, Marcus. I feel the same way that if if I were basing this on my own faith or my own investigation, or um, there would be no reason to believe that mine is any better than anybody else's gospel. But it's not. It's based upon the historical witness, that which has been received and passed on by the first witnesses of Christ. Yeah, in fact, early in the, it's said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that uh, this report that Paul is responding to is that there were a group within this church, Chloe's people, um, uh, telling Paul that there had been some quarreling amongst them. And one of the problems was that people were starting to break up into little cliques around certain people. Um, You know, in verse uh, 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, and I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. And his statement is, wait a second, is Christ divided? Yeah. Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And so, 
eventually he's bringing this whole thing together to says, here's the core of what this is about. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and those of us that you're following, the reason that we have any authority whatsoever is because by the mercy of God, we were witnesses to his resurrection. Yeah, this is what Paul says in the verse 9, the verse just beyond the one we've been reading here. He says, I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by God's grace, I am what I am. That is, he's given. It's God's grace that has made him what he is. None of us deserves to be called by God, but by God does call us to be a part of his church. Ken, as we move forward uh, in this period of Easter, all right, uh, and what we're trying to do in the program is to encourage our listeners to not put what's essential to Easter away. You can go ahead and put all the Easter bunnies and the eggs and the, <laughs> the stuff away. And the other night I was watching on classic movies uh, uh, an old movie called Easter Parade that had Judy Garland and Fred Astaire on it. And they're all about walking and prancing in New York City and in your Easter <laughs> bonnet. That's where that song comes from. And there's not one mention in the entire movie about the purpose of Easter. So as we move forward, Ken, what's some words of encouragement from the verses we've looked at for our audience of what well, we can do to reappreciate Easter? Yeah, well, one of them that we discussed earlier is the, is the very fact of the resurrection. And that's what we have to get, I think, in our minds. If Jesus is, has not been raised from the dead, then we might as well forget about the name Christian and simply go on and live our lives however we think is right. On the other hand, if he is resurrected, then he needs to be the focus of our lives. The other thing that, that, that there's several things that we're going to be dealing with in the weeks to come. But one of them is the great hope in the nature of our own life. The resurrection, our physical bodily resurrection is something to the future. But the resurrection life that we live has already been started now through our baptism, as we're going to look at Romans chapter six later in the in a couple in a, in a couple of weeks. Uh, and this foundational chapter, chapter 15, reminds us that our resurrected life, our resurrection life begins now and the resurrected body that we'll have in the future kingdom will be like nothing we've ever experienced before. Jesus resurrected is the very foundation of our lives. And in the center of every Catholic Mass, in, yes. it, it, there is the, the call by the priest to have us recite the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. There's the mystery in the center of our faith. And as you said, Ken, as we approach this season, I pray that the Lord will help us to revisit and to appreciate that great gift of the resurrection of our Lord for us. May we hold fast. Thank you, Ken, today for joining. Thank you, Marcus, for being, I'd love to be with you. And all of you, thank you for joining this program. Please connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. God bless. See you next week.